0: This podcast is brought to you by CEW Plus at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor as we work to serve our community during this unprecedented time of change. Resiliency is best demonstrated in times of challenges. Join CEW Plus Director Tiffany Mara as she talks to students, staff, faculty, and community members connected to the University of Michigan's Center for the Education of Women Plus in our podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change.
1: Today's podcast features Dessa Cosma, CEW's outgoing Twink Fry visiting social activist. The program supports activists whose work addresses equity issues that affect the lives of women and or girls. The program defines social justice and equity programs broadly to include activism through an intersectional framework. The Twink Fry visiting social activist program is made possible through a generous gift from U of M alumna, Twink Fry. Dessa is a social justice activist and the founding director of Detroit Disability Power, which started to grow the organizing power of the disability community and to continue bridging the gap between the disability community and larger social justice movements. She has a particular interest in disability focused political work that is grounded in anti-racism and economic justice. Dessa, it's my honor to get to speak to you today. Welcome to the Strength in the Midst of Change podcast.
2: Thank you so much, Tiffany. I'm
1: really glad to be here. Excellent. Can you please introduce yourself and tell us your story, including how you came to found Detroit Disability Power?
2: Absolutely. So I am Gessa. I use she, her pronouns. I really think that the entirety of my life is what led me to starting Detroit Disability Power. I am a person with a disability. I have been my entire life. I'm both a little person, so I'm about three and a half feet tall, and I'm a wheelchair user. And so, these mobility disabilities have really you know shaped a lot of my experience in the world. If you start thinking about it for even just a couple of minutes, you'll realize how you know physically inaccessible so much of the environment around us is. And so, for me, as a kid, I really grew up understanding that the world was built and designed for some people way more than others. and I experienced that as a wheelchair-using kid, you know, who couldn't get in to all the places I wanted to go, couldn't play some of the games that my friends were playing, always had to use workarounds in school just to access, you know, different classes and parts of the building. And I also experienced it as a person who was very different than those around me, both religiously and politically. So I grew up in the Deep South with a progressive, non-Christian family. And so most of the people around us were really culturally different than us in those ways. And on top of that, we were really low income. So I had a single parent who, you know, worked multiple minimum wage jobs. And so I really think that that combination of poverty and disability and kind of having a different set of values than a lot of the folks around me was a real eye-opening experience from a young age about the decisions that are made by people in positions of power and by the quote-unquote like mainstream and dominant group and what that means for the rest of us. And so my mom kind of jokes that I was I've been an activist since I was a kid and that's true I did like organize the kids in my neighborhood. <laughs> that's great. I share all that because our life experiences are what you know, shape us into the adults that we become a lot of times. And also that as an activist and then organizer, my whole goal is to change the world and it's been evident to me for a long time that that needs to happen for the sake of fairness and equity. So, you know, to speed up this story a bit, knowing that I wanted to change the world, I studied things in college that were about changing the world, like women's studies and international relations. And I started doing a lot of organizing in school and realized like, oh, this is where I want my career to be and my life to be. And so I spent about 15 years after college organizing in different movement spaces, about reproductive justice and economic justice and racial justice. And I kept finding myself being the only kind of apparently disabled person in those meetings and in those decision making rooms about, you know, what ballot initiative to run or what policy to support or what candidate to support. And it just got more and more uncomfortable for me as a disabled person to be alone. And I felt like there were so many important perspectives that were being ignored because people didn't have a disability consciousness. And I also started feeling angry that when I would bring it up, I was not really heard or respected in that. And so I started Detroit Disability Power, honestly, as a reaction to what I saw as a real void in the local social justice landscape, and I knew that if we organized people with disabilities, we could start changing the way that social justice movements uh, approach issues of disability.
1: Yeah, when you talk about your experience in college, as well as growing up, are there values that you bring to Detroit Disability Power that really draw in your own experiences of feeling isolated in conversations and also being the person having to be the voice for an entire community?
2: Certainly, I do. And I mean, some of those are really big into collaboration. To me, if you really want the best outcome for any kind of social change work, whether it's at the institutional level or cultural level, It's important to have a lot of different experiences at the table when deciding how to do that and what the priorities are, particularly those who are most impacted by whatever the decision is. So that requires, you know, really prioritizing and valuing different perspectives and the hard work that is collaboration and consensus building. Mm -hmm. Um, It also really requires a commitment to intersectionality, knowing that, You know, whatever body slash minds we have in this world does impact our ability to succeed and our access to resources, not inherently necessarily, but because we've set up inequitable economic and social systems. Mm -hmm. And so like, I would say collaboration and intersectionality are like two of the top values. But I think also from a disability perspective, and as a, a person who's literally been creatively problem solving for my entire life just to get from point A to point B. There's a real commitment to creativity and solving problems in ways that are outside of the kind of dominant paradigm. And so that experimentation and learning and evolution are real big internal qualities uh, and values that Detroit Disability Power that I know are born out of our collective experiences as disabled people. Mm
1: Yeah, I know a lot of the work that you've done helps bridge the gap between the disability community and the larger social justice movement. And what you just said about having to be creative and solve problems pulls on that for those who come from more dominant perspective experiences. In what ways can others help bridge the gap between the disability community and larger movements?
2: That's a great question. So I think for those of us who are people with disabilities, in movement spaces there's always a risk assessment that we have to make do i bring up my disability right now or the the access needs that i have will that be perceived as derailing something will that be perceived as a pain in the butt will that be perceived as me whining or complaining and if i don't do that what's the risk right i won't get my needs met i won't be able to be my full self i'll be inauthentic right So I think, you know, those of us with disabilities in movement spaces are are probably always weighing those things out. And I think, you know, if you have the wherewithal, having the conversation as much as possible when we do have the wherewithal is a really important educational piece for non-disabled people who, quite frankly, are probably just not thinking about it. Mm -hmm. And that's not to let folks totally off the hook, like folks should be thinking about it. It's all of our responsibilities to understand our points of privilege, whether that's being not disabled or being white or being just male or whatever it is, you know, we have a responsibility to know what that means and how to mitigate the unearned access that we have. And disabled people need allies in that. We need movement folks that are not disabled to do some self-reflection and some learning and some studying about their feelings and experiences with disability, where they have a political analysis gap around disability. I've been in just way too many Read all spaces where people will have like a brilliant race class gender analysis and then you start talking about disability as a constituency group of people at the receiving end of a system of oppression and folks eyes kind of glaze over like oh those people you know they get real confused and so there's just a real consciousness raising that needs to happen and a commitment from non-disabled people to understand disability as a group um, people that are facing ableism and then making a commitment to doing what they can in their sphere in collaboration, in relationship with variety of disabled people to dismantle the ways that ableism is showing up in their organizing work. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, the term ally is an interesting one because I've heard debates about allies actually causing harm. In mm-hmm. what ways can allies be positive members of the community?
2: Yeah, I think allies is kind of a loaded term. You know, a lot of times we'll use co-conspirator or co-liberator, mm-hmm. which really speaks more to the fact that like all of our liberation is bound up with each other. So, like none of us can be free until all of us are free. Mm-hmm. Sentiment. And the way we talk about that at Detroit Disability Power is the kind of catchphrase true inclusion is revolutionary. And what we mean by that is if we were to change the world, meaning everything about our society, from the way our government works, the way our schools work, to the way our religious institutions work and economy and all of that, if we were to change those things to actually meet the needs of disabled people across the disability spectrum, the world would end up completely differently. Like, it would almost be unrecognizable. That's how revolutionary it is to actually make this world work for us. Mm -hmm. And I think that also shows just how far we have to go to make this world work for us this is not currently working and there's a couple of bright spots in that kind of bleak understanding and one of them is that we're in great company this world is actually frankly not working for most people Mm -hmm. and by that i mean many women identified folks lgbtq folks people of color immigrants like the way this is set up is not working for a majority of us and so uh, that good company can be organized and in solidarity with each other And, and obviously those communities overlap hugely, right? Like every disabled person has a racial identity and gender identity, et cetera. So they're not separate groups. Mm -hmm. I find a lot of power and strength and optimism in that. And I think the other kind of bright spot, if you will, in that desire to change everything is that all the things around us that aren't working for us are because of a set of decisions that were made. They're not inevitable. They're not the only way things can be done. It just means that different people need to be in power and different communities need to have more power. And so that is why we focus on building political power is so that we can be the people making decisions and those decisions can reflect the values and experiences of disabled people. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. In a past conversation, you mentioned the notion of voting blocks. Can you share with our listeners what you mean by voting blocks and seeing individuals with disabilities as a voting block?
2: Sure, yeah. I mean, when you think about disability in a broad sense, which is the best way to do it for lots of reasons, you know, we make up a significant part of the population, no less than 25%. We are pretty much the largest non-dominant group in the United States, and we're super diverse, right? So we're diverse in terms of the things I mentioned around race and class and gender and citizenship and all of that but we're also diverse in terms of our disabilities. And so while me as a person with a mobility disability has a different set of access needs than someone who is deaf or blind, for example, what we do have in common is that we're on the receiving end of ableism. And that systemic discrimination affects disabled people across the spectrum in some similar ways and some different ways, but ultimately it's the same big problem which is that people with disabilities are considered less valuable than those without and so in terms of a voting block we have seen the power that organized groups can have on the outcome of elections for better or worse and in my estimation until we can build a strong and powerful voting block of disabled people and our co-conspirators then we're not going to get what we need from elected officials and other government decision makers. They're going to have to feel the exertion of our power and our demands to do what needs to be done because frankly, it's easier to like maintain the status quo in some ways. And so until more disabled people are in elected office, until we can put pressure on those in decision-making to do better by our community, I don't think it's getting our needs met. Mm -hmm. We haven't thus far. (laughs) And so a voting block is one part of a much bigger strategy to building power.
1: Mm -hmm. Voting rights was very much a large portion of your work over the past year. As you look back on your time as a Twink Fry visiting social activist, can you share any highlights or aha moments of the experience with us?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, the uh, opportunity with this project, it was so well-timed for a couple of reasons. Initially, I was able through the VSA to travel around the U.S. back in 2018, travel around the U.S. to about 10 cities and interview more than 40 disability activists. And the goal of these interviews was to kind of get folks opinions and experience and questions on where we are at this moment in time in terms of disability organizing. And to hear from them, like, what was challenging, what was going well, where there were opportunities to be more intersectional in the disability-focused work, where they wanted to see funders acting differently in regards to disability-focused work and the like. And going around talking to these folks was an incredible experience, not only for me to get to know them, and start building relationships with them. And I still talk to most of them very regularly. But I also did it right before I started Detroit Disability Power, which meant that I was starting a disability-focused social justice organization at the same time that I was talking to these people who had been doing that for years. Mm-hmm. And so the ability to like have their wisdom like right at my fingertips as I was designing an organization that was meant to be countercultural, was meant to push the envelope, speak truth to power, change our culture, all those things was really remarkable. And I'm super, super grateful for how that timing and opportunity worked out. The other thing that is, you know, great about the opportunity and the timing of it is that, you know, we've had some really important elections recently. And There was so much opportunity to connect the dots between different social movements through focusing on voting rights. And so the voting rights project that our team produced to show the intergenerational fight for suffrage from the perspectives of multiple groups, so uh, women, people of color, disabled people, all fighting for voting rights, I think is well-timed in that you know, As a country, we've been definitely having more conversations around racial justice, particularly as it's tied to elections and the right to vote and a long history of voter suppression. And there is room in those conversations to think about who else is affected by voter suppression, even if that suppression looks kind of differently. And so the people with disabilities are not a group that I think mainstream people who know about voter suppression are thinking about, but in actuality, there is suppression happening in our community in a different way, typically, than it's happening for communities of color, but it's still wrong. And there are ways for us to collaborate across communities in an intersectional holistic way to push back on that. And so I think, you know, this is a good moment in time to be working on uh, voting issues in an intersectional way. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, at CEW, we're honored to help you release the report that's the outcome from your work. The latest work are the intersectional, multi-generational fight for voting rights. For everyone listening today, the report is linked under the description of the podcast in the stories section of the CEW website, where our podcasts are posted. Dessa, what do you hope readers will take away from that report?
2: Well, I think a couple of things are key. One is that people with disabilities are a constituency, as diverse as we are. We are a constituency of people who have been facing, in this case, lack of access to voting. And so if we're going to be engaged in voting reform, it has to have people with disabilities at the table. And it has to have disability analysis. It's going to actually achieve what it purports to want to achieve, which is better voting access and less restrictions on voting. So, all social movements, in my opinion, need a disability perspective, and you know, voting access is one of them. I also think it's important to take away that people with disabilities, also, as I said a moment ago, have other. Of our identities that have impacted our ability to vote. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, people of color with disabilities or previously women with disabilities, right, are facing barriers from multiple perspectives and in multiple ways. And so there's overlap and there's a difference. So, for example, if a polling location gets shut down in a neighborhood that's predominantly people of color and it's done by, you know, legislators. They say for one reason, but, you know, probably to limit how many people show up to vote from that neighborhood. That has an impact on all the people in that neighborhood and should be fixed. But it has a particular impact on people in that neighborhood who are also disabled, who may not be able to travel as far, may not have accessible public transportation, that kind of thing. And so it's always critical to remember that there's privilege and oppression happening simultaneously in all communities and for all people, and that we need to have a disability perspective to make sure that we're really getting at the root of issues and not just solving problems for part of a group, but not the full group, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Um, Connecting the dots a bit here between something you said early on about not being heard, feeling silenced when you were growing up, or in conversations in women's studies courses, and connecting that with something Twink has mentioned several times, which is that the intent of the VSA is to give voice to individuals and their work as activists. Are there ways in which the VSA helped give voice or gave you different inroads with different communities or organizations?
2: Absolutely. I mean, I really can't overstate how critical the conversations with the people I interviewed back in 2018 were. As I started to say, these are folks that I still, you know, three years later, talk to regularly, get advice from, check in with about projects that Detroit Disability Power is working on. These are folks who are, you know, well connected in national disability circles and are doing really cool work wherever they are. And so like having peers in that way is invaluable. We've done all sorts of things together, you know, workshops, thunder briefings, created documents to share. It's really good to have peers because this work is really difficult. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And also it's good to have disabled peers. You know, I do have a lot of peers in social justice organizations that are not disability organizations and those people are not disabled and that's really great but to be able to have peers that are also disabled and running disability organizations, that's really invaluable. So that's huge. And I think, you know, in terms of being able to lift up my voice and my ideas, the support from the VSA to work on these projects has helped me focus and has provided resources to put towards the project in a way that wouldn't have been possible otherwise. So that is also much appreciated.
1: I can tell you derive a lot of energy out of your work that you're very passionate about it. Right? <laughs> it started yes. when you were in womb, it sounds like. So <laughs> um, you know what keeps you going? What do you enjoy the most about your work as an activist?
2: Well, there's probably three things. One, I really love people. I really find a lot of energy from having meaningful conversations with people and organizing is all about relationships and so I dig that secondly I actually really do like creative problem solving maybe again that is from having to do it every time I leave my house (laughs) but there's so much wrong with the way our world has been designed Mm -hmm. so I definitely get energy from you know fixing whatever small pieces of that I can be a part of fixing and then I guess relatedly is that it helps me despair less if I'm working on the solution. Hmm. If I wasn't doing social justice work, I think I would feel very overwhelmed and depressed by the problems that we're facing as a world. Mm-hmm. And this keeps me focused on what we are doing. And that is good for my mental health.
1: I definitely feel that in my own work with all that's going on in the world. If you could go back and tell your younger self any advice as you were starting your work as an activist? What advice would you give mm-hmm. yourself?
2: That is such a great question. I was just giving this advice to a undergraduate intern that we currently have and I would have given it to myself too which is to cultivate a strong work-life balance including some hefty boundaries around time and space. Organizing is a very intense job it's a very emotional job it's a very taxing job it's also very life-giving but it can 100,000% take over your life not only because it's meaningful and you know hopefully you're passionate about it but also because it's non-traditional hours it's, you know things will take longer than expected and it's an uphill battle of dismantling like centuries of systems of oppression so it really can take over and so i think having the boundaries taking care of oneself, remembering that if we don't take care of ourselves, we can't bring our best or full self to the movement work if we're not doing well. And also to, you know, regularly check in, do gut checks. It can be hard as a marginalized person or a person with target identities to say what you need or what you want. And I know I spent too much time thinking that, getting what I needed and wanted was all my responsibility as a disabled person. And I wish I would have been more clear, right? And But that's obviously the effect of ableism. Our dominant culture <laughs> taught me that. I, I mm-hmm. didn't come up with it by myself, mm-hmm. but you know, if I could go back and save some time of thinking that I had to solve all the access challenges myself and like really could have made it more of a community effort to lift some of that labor off of me, I would have really appreciated that. So that's also something that I would say to my former self.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, we try and encourage our listeners to invest in self-care, which you mentioned just now. Do you have any self-care practices that you would like to share with everyone?
2: Sure. I love working in a garden. To me, tending plants is this very tangible way to switch gears. So, you know, a lot of days I sit at a computer a lot. I'm on a lot of Zoom meetings. I'm, you know, rushing around, writing a lot you know thinking really hard communicating with a lot of different people about a lot of different topics and it makes me spent. you know and then at the end of the day to go out in the garden and just you know talk to my plants check in on them give them what they need watch them grow like that is super decompressing to me and I love seeing the growth and the life that you know I'm helping to cultivate in my yard that's like one main thing especially this time of year And I also have just started doing something that I never used to do, but it feels really good right now, which is just sitting, (laughs) just like sitting, (laughs) preferably outside on a nice day, but just like not feeling like I have to be doing anything and definitely not looking at a screen while I'm sitting there, but just sitting there and being observant about the world around me and just letting my brain go wherever it needs to go. And that
1: feels really good. Yeah. How you describe your gardening experience is a bit different than mine. I'm all about pulling the weeds. (laughs) 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 You sound like my partner. (laughs) (laughs) And I see it as allowing space for the healthy plants to thrive.
2: (laughs) I think it's a good metaphor. That's a great
1: metaphor. Yeah. Well, Dessa, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Are there any last thoughts you'd like to share before we end
2: the interview? I really appreciate CEW and Twink support the last few years. It's been awesome and just honored to be a part of it. Yeah, likewise,
1: it's been a huge honor to get to work with you and to learn from you and just to see all the progress you've made in such a short amount of time. Thank you so much for doing this, Tessa.
0: Thank you for listening to CEW's podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change. To learn more about this episode or the services and virtual programming offered by CEW+, please visit cew.umich.edu. Here at CEW+, we navigate circumstantial barriers by providing academic, financial, and professional support to help you reach your personal potential. Established to support women through higher education, we lift up women and all underserved communities at the University of Michigan and beyond. Through career and education counseling, funding, workshops, events, and a diverse welcoming community, we exist to empower. We are CEW+, and we are here to help you reach your potential. The University of Michigan resides on the traditional territories of the Three Fires peoples, the Ojibwa, Odawa, and Potawatomi.